This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Fabian Yabuila. And I'm Ben Brophy. So welcome back, brothers. Um, ben, ben came back with a new voice. Oh, there ben we came go. came back with a little Barry Weiss. I'm ben <laughs> I've been working on my radio voice. There we go. There we go. Yeah. What did it say? Like, I have a face fit for radio? That's me. Yeah, I'm a face for radio. So um, it's the beginning of season two. How about that? Yeah. We did it, guys. We're, we're, you know, we decided that we would keep doing this. We've reached tens of listeners. <laughs> tens and tens of listeners. And we're grateful. We're grateful to all of you who did listen and who gave us feedback and gave us comments. And um, Is this where we all say, thanks, Mom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Something like that. Something like that. But let, let's put it this way. We all kind of looked at the feedback and we thought, yeah, it's worth getting together and doing some more of these. So here we are. Yeah. Feedback's been encouraging, uh, and so really, thank you guys for uh, listening. Those of you who've tuned in and give us a retweet and recommending us to other of your friends and family, uh, it's been an encouragement, and um, we it's it's yeah, it's kept us it's kept us going, wanting to talk and wanting mm-hmm. to serve in this way. I have to say, um, I've been encouraged by seeing feedback that is sort of the feedback I envisioned and or hoped for, mm. which is sort of a this is a an aspect of the conversation that I had been missing and wanted, and now I have it. And yeah. I think that's what I've heard from a lot of people, and I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a blessing. Yeah. yeah. Even as we celebrate the feedback, though, it's, it's, um, I feel pressed to say again, but who are we? <laughs> right? So, mm-hmm. we, we're like three guys having a conversation, trying to think it through um, carefully. And if, if at some point that's an encouragement to others, then that feels like a, a real bonus to me. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, Today, we are going to veer into territory we haven't ventured into before, mm-hmm. which is uh, foreign policy. Um, <clears throat> now, one thing I've reflected on is that we're not going to talk about any specific foreign policy issue today. We're not talking about you know, the war in Afghanistan or relations with this country or whatever. Today is really just about giving an overview, um, get an overview of sort of what is foreign policy. So starters, Nick. I mean, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. You, you're the guy who brings us the good research, and so right. we appreciate that. What, what, okay. When we talk well, about foreign policy, yeah. what are we talking about? And by the way, we've got we've got two amateur foreign policy people here. Ben this and I both true. have degrees from that's right a long time ago. That's right in ben, foreign policy. Ben was trying to duck it. It's gonna be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I did once get a degree in comparative politics. Uh, that was a long time ago, and I remember very little. Uh, but, uh, I'm sure I'm if there if I can do anything well, it's give my unfounded opinion on. It. Here we go, Many guys. Things. Hey, foreign policy is one of the issue areas with the highest opinion to fact ratio that uh, we see. Well, I just I mean in the sense Perfect of like everyone has, yeah, that's right. Everyone everyone has an opinion about what's going on over there, right? So, okay, so to understand foreign policy, I think we have to start with this question. Currently, as we understand it. The world is made up of uh, 195 countries, or 193, depending on how you count. Um, and that actually wasn't inevitable, right? The world wasn't always sort of divided up so neatly, um, in some places more neatly than others, um, into countries. Um, we've talked about the idea of a state before, a government, a power with the monopoly on the use of force, uh, that as Christians understand it, is ordained to use the power of the sword to enforce order and hopefully punish wrongdoing. Um, we've also talked about the idea of a nation um, when we talked about ethnicity to be reminded us of the table of nations um, and we've talked about how that relates to familial ties and ethnic identity um, 
And today, in many cases, these things are combined into something we call a nation state. Um, and, um, you know, so, for example, you have the state of France, but you also have the French people and people who think of themselves as French. Uh, the modern nation state is where the idea of identifying with your state, like I'm a Canadian, I'm an American, I'm British or whatever, uh, comes from. Um, and so it's important to understand that our current system is kind of divided into these nation states. There are 195 actors, each of them with different amounts of power. And inter international relations, I'm, we're oversimplifying here a little, but it's really about two, answering two questions. First, what should we expect to happen between these 195 nation states? Like, what are the rules of the game? What, how, 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 do, how does the world work, essentially, without making judgments about how it should work? But then the should part is, if you're one of those nation states, what should you do vis-a-vis -vis all the others? What's the right thing to do? Um, and that's where sort of the value judgment um, comes in, and that is what any country would call its foreign policy. What should it do with respect to all of its neighbors? Um, this, is, this is where you get into what's called international relations theory. Um, I, I'll try not to spend too much time on this, um, but you know there are kind of two dominant theories in international relations. Um, one of them is called realism. Um, and the idea of realism is to say, you know, the ordering principle of the world is uh, one of anarchy. And they choose that word kind of very very specifically. So we've talked about, you know, within a state, the state control technically has a monopoly on the use of force, controls everything. But between states, there is no overweening, overwhelming state that can tell all the other states what to do. Um, therefore, it's technically sort of a might-makes-right situation between states. Um, states can be expected to do what is in their interest, no more, no less. And if you're one of those states, this is the should part, you would be naive to think anything else. So you should act in your own self-interest, even when it means you do things that are contrary to the values you might espouse. Um, now, set against realism is what's called liberalism. And I have to just say right now, it's not the liberalism that we've been talking about in any right. kind, theological or political, right. in in, in, in any of the other episodes. It's just a academic's term for this strain of thinking in international relations. So international relations liberalism says that the, the TLDR on it is, come on guys, we're better than that. We're we're better than that sort of, you know, kind of least common denominator self-interest that the realists say. Um, in other words, it's not just raw interest and capability that shapes what states do. Um, their ideologies and ideas and values uh, can have a profound effect. So a state that is a liberal democracy will act differently from one that's authoritarian. So a realist would say this isn't the case. Uh, a dictatorship and a democracy can be expected, given the same set of conditions in the world around them, to behave in the exact same way. That a realist, fundamentally, I think, would say that. Um, there's a subset here of something called the democratic peace hypothesis, which says democracies are less likely to go to war with one another or even to war at all. Um, and if that's true, then that runs against realism. It says that values affect how countries behave, um, the values those countries hold, not just their interests. What that also leads to is a sense that cooperation and interdependence among nations is possible and desirable. Um, so even the idea, for example, of the European Union, that is 27 different European states, maybe 26 soon, depending on what happens with Brexit, um, covering and uniting a continent that spent most of the 20th century at war with itself. Um, 
well, gosh, the existence of the EU shows that ideals can overcome naked self-interest. That's what a liberal would say. Um, a realist would say, nope, nope, it will fall apart as soon as interests dictate that it should fall apart. And maybe, and they, they might point to Brexit or others as their exhibit A uh, on that. Um, so if you're a liberal, though, you think that promoting certain values can help solve the problem of international relations. Uh, political liberalism and democracy are often chief among these. So one famous practitioner of this philosophy in American history was Woodrow Wilson, so much so that we often think of these ideals as quote-unquote Wilsonian ideas. Mm. Uh, why? Because Woodrow Wilson, um, you know, he was the first person to think, well, maybe we ought to have this thing called a League of Nations, which was sort of the predecessor to the United Nations that was going to bring together um, countries in an international forum to try to promote these sorts of ideals. Um, so we kind of think a lot of Wilson when we think of liberalism. Um, let me just stop there for a second. Ben, anything you'd add? Anything like you'd, you'd sort of <clears throat> nuance that with? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think in my understanding of realism, and there's a, obviously a, a myriad of different realists that are going to apply it different ways. One, I think one important note, these aren't um, moral judgments, right? I think some people would look at, oh, realism and liberalism and say, oh, these are, you know, there's, the realist is the amoral Machiavellian kind of, that's, my understanding is they're trying to find a theory of international relations that accurately describes what's going on. And so if they're trying to predict how a particular nation is going to act, they're going to say, they're going to act in their own self-interest as that nation defines their self-interest. So it's a way to accurately describe what they see, not any sort of moral judgment of like, you know, realism is the best way or the highest moral good but rather uh, a way to a grid to understand international actors as they relate to one another. There's a subset of realism, which is game theory. And, you know, I'm not going to get into any of that, but that is starting to apply quantitative methods to evaluate how nations are going to act given certain assumptions about their interests. Yeah. And this has been relatively accurate in kind of understanding. Yeah. I'll give you a really simple application of sure. realism versus liberalism, right? So nuclear deterrence mm. is like a, a very, very clear-cut example. So realists, a, a hardcore realist will say, um, you know, actually, nuclear deterrence is pretty stable. I've got a bunch of nukes. You've got a bunch of nukes. If you hit me with your nukes, then I'm going to hit you with mine. We'll both die. And so therefore, there's a. it's in my interest not to attack you and in your interest not to attack mine. So a person who is a true committed realist will say, the answer is literally for every country to have nukes. Yep. Then nobody will attack anybody, yep. right? A liberal is aghast at that idea and says, we, like non-proliferation, the whole non-proliferation movement, the idea of we're going to get rid of nukes, right, uh, is a very liberal strain of thinking. The idea we can be better than that, better mm -hmm. than our own self-interest. So that's just one example of how that yeah. plays out. And we're going to get to this later, but they start to they start to interact in really interesting ways, especially when you start defining your self-interest as the flourishing of all people in the world, right? So neoconservatism is, is a version of this. You know, we're going to export democracy, mm. and that's going to make the world better. So there's a value judgment there. But a lot of neoconservatives have defined their self-interest as exporting democracy for a host of reasons. So there's mixing and matching of both of these worldviews in, in odd ways. Yeah. So three, let me just ask you before I go on to the next bit, just, I mean, 
you were you, uh, you, to be admitted like he's not a you know international relations theory nerd how dare you um, <laughs> the way the two of us were at one point in our lives what was your reaction on looking at this with like fresh eyes or just thinking about this well I think the thing I met, resonated most with was uh, game theory um, only because there used to be a television show called Numbers uh, that featured game theory and predicting crime and solving <laughs> crimes. So that's as close as I come uh, to having any kind of pedigree in, in this area, except as a, a, a sort of observer. Um, it feels like to me that, that everybody's a realist and some people are aspiring to be liberal, mm. right? So there's this tension between these things. So I, I, I resonate with... Uh, Ben's last sort of comment, it, sort of mm. the the categories overlap at points and, and in interesting kinds of ways. And so uh, I, I don't know that there's a creature who is purely mm. on the sort of liberal side of the spectrum uh, and not also trying to account for the way the world really is, mm-hmm. right? That, that would seem to be a, a dangerously naive position to stake out, um, if I'm understanding this correctly, and yep, not reducing right. it to a total caricature. Uh, and on the other hand, I, I don't know that we have any real pure Machiavellians, um, any pure sort of realists. Oh, okay. So who do you have in mind there? Yeah. Henry Kissinger? Hmm. Yeah, that's a fair example. But I think, he, yeah, I think that's a fair example. Ma- Ma- Machiavelli himself. Himself. Um, <laughs> from whence the word comes. Um, and actually, like, if you think, like, I mean, you go back to history, like, um, like oh gosh I'm gonna get this wrong, I'm I'm thinking like I, I may be wrong about this I think like Otto von Bismarck, like you think about like the concert of Europe based entirely around balancing European powers against each other, um, and that was the stability right that he sort of created. Mm. I hope it was Bismarck who created. It. We will correct that if it's not true. <laughs> um, but um, so so so, so I, well, but I, I I would actually agree with you that. It's hard to find a pure liberal. It's probably easier to find a pure realist. Hmm. You'll find some really committed people who say, y'all are just daydreaming there about your ideals and your values. This is how it really well, works. I, I think that's right. This is yeah. why I say, This is why yeah. I start by saying I think everybody's a realist. Mm-hmm. But then you have some folks who are aspiring to mm-hmm. I think uh, that's right. a kind of liberalism yeah. uh, to a greater extent or a lesser extent. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I don't think we can live in a world mm. reasonably uh, without healthy doses of what we're calling yeah. uh, realism here. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so. one really nerdy uh, clarif- clarifying question. So, Nick, when you're using the term realist, are you thinking of kind of the academic theory of understanding how states interact? Are you thinking of people like Henry Kissinger who are saying, I'm going to pursue the United States' interests no matter what and use any mechanism I can to advance those interests as I define those are, them. Those are two sides of the same coin, right? right? Side one is, this is how the world works. Right. Side two is, therefore, it makes sense for me to behave in this way, right? right? And so Kissinger would say, I have no illusions yeah. that like, this is about anything other than my protecting American interests, right? right? And like, this is what I'm doing. And by the way, we'll, I'm going to say a little bit about Kissinger and why I said that about him in just a second so that those of you who don't have context can, can have it. Well, this is a good place in to sort of bring this into American history yeah. bit and the intersections there. So un- yep. unpack that for All us. All right, so history of American foreign policy in five minutes or less. <laughs> um, a, a natural starting point is um, our first president, George Washington, who... Um, in his farewell address, sort of famously, we all learn this in our history classes, warns his people against so-called foreign entanglements 
um, which is to say treaties, alliances, back and forth, etc., which was common in the international system then and now. Um, in that sense, he was a realist. And there was something specific about America's geography then, right? Um, we're an ocean away from most of these great powers in Europe. Um, no good, he says, can come from relating to these other nations. Let us take advantage of our isolation and just grow on our own. And the first hundred years of American foreign policy roughly hews to that, um, trying to preserve this isolationism, but sometimes defending America's interests at home. So the War of 1812 is a seen as a kind of we're defending against the British Empire. Um, you have something called the Monroe Doctrine, um, which President James Monroe uh, promulgated, which basically tells European nations, hands off the Western Hemisphere, it's closed for business. Um, and again, just self-interest, leave us alone. And we'll leave you alone in return, by the way. <laughs> that was the other part of the doctrine. Um, isolationist and realist. Um, we're one of the world's first democracies, but we care little about whether everyone else is a democracy. We're just trying to figure it out for ourselves, essentially. Civil war happens. That's a separate um, sort of thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about on a future podcast. Um, but of course, you can imagine that in the aftermath of the Civil War, we're even more inward focused. We're busy kind of cleaning up after that. And as we get to the close of the 19th century, though, America's power is growing. It's becoming a larger economy. Its isolation is being challenged simply because it's so it's bigger and more important than it used to be. Um, we try. So early 20th century, World War I breaks out in Europe, gigantic biggest conflict in history to date. Um, we stay out of World War I for nearly two and a half years. Again, we're an ocean away. We can afford to ignore it. It's not going to affect us. But it really is a world war, and eventually it does affect us. Right? So the Germans won one side of that war. Um, they start attacking uh, American boats with submarines. They start making overtures to Mexico saying, if you form an alliance with us, we can get back the territory that uh, America, that the U.S. took from you. And um, so finally, in its own self-interest, America enters the war can argue helps turn the tide and ends up on the winning side okay so right after that there are some early green shoots of liberalism this is Woodrow Wilson after all is president at this time um, he attempts to form a League of Nations and yet realism rears its head again the Senate won't ratify Wilson's own treaty to join the League of Nations so we as a founder don't join and the League of Nations is sort of permanently hobbled uh, because of that um, we go back to being isolationist um, 30 years later, World War II breaks out. Again, we try to stay out of it. This time we can only stay out for about two years. But again, we needed a pretext. The pretext in that case was the attack on Pearl Harbor. Our interests are at stake. Um, there's a saying often attributed to Winston Churchill that comes out of these two world wars. Um, America can always be trusted to do the right thing, provided that they have exhausted all the alternatives. <laughs> so, after World War II, the American posture shifts. This is a real breakpoint, actually, for American realism and isolationism. Um, you could argue, though, that what happens next is motivated partially by realism and partially by liberalism. And the two have, I, I would argue, been in tension ever since and have defined the debates we have about foreign policy to this day. So how do we get there? Um, so on its face, there's a lot of liberal stuff going on. The United Nations gets created, and it actually sticks. Everybody joins, right? The United Nations has universal membership and respects the sovereignty of every member nation. That itself is a first of its kind happening in the globe. There's also a bunch of treaty alliances that America makes. 
Most notable of those is something called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. NATO includes the US, Canada, Australia, a whole bunch of countries in Europe, Britain, etc. Um, it is formed, at least in part, to counter the emerging threat from the Soviet Union. Um, it establishes something called collective security. So the famous Article 5 of the NATO Treaty says, an attack on one member state is an attack on all member states. Um, so if the USSR invades West Germany, we've got to respond as if we were invaded. That itself is new. And it's not clear that it would always be in our self-interest to respond, but the treaty says we must. Um, so there's something liberal about that. There are also a bunch of global financial institutions set up. The World Bank, the IMF, what's called the Bretton Woods Financial System, by which we essentially controlled the global supply of currency for the next three decades um, until the 1970s. Um, and so all this system exists, and we're maintaining it. We're bearing the cost of maintaining it. And so if you ever heard in the world in the 80s and 90s, it was popular to say when I was growing up, I don't think the U.S. should be the world's policeman. This was what they were getting at. Should we be doing all this stuff out there in the world, or should we retreat back to our kind of, you know, isolationism that's in our DNA? Um, so all that sounds really liberal, right? Except that it's not. To hear a realist tell it, all of those alliances, all those treaty commitments were entirely about power and the U.S.'s interest. The Cold War with the Soviet Union essentially explains everything in this telling of the story. There's a global superpower on the other end of the planet trying to end our way of life. We have to defend against it um, because it was in our interest to defend our way of life. Uh, and by the way, here's where Henry Kissinger comes in, right? We did some pretty terrible things to do that, to defend that way of life, to prosecute the Cold War. So we would prop up some pretty unsavory governments and leaders in the Middle East, in Latin America, in Asia. It didn't matter that they weren't democracies. What mattered was that they weren't communists. Mm. So we fought some terribly expensive wars, most notably in Vietnam, because we thought it was in our interests to defeat this rival superpower. So then we get to the modern era. The Cold War ends in the early 90s. For a little while, it seems like the pressure's off. The 90s are characterized by what look like liberal interventions. The Iraq war is essentially an attempt to uphold the international order. Iraq has invaded Kuwait. We say we, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. We will step in, be the world's policeman, quote unquote, mm. and prevent that from happening. Um, whereas you could argue, well, was it, did, did it really matter whether Iraq controlled Kuwait or not? If you look at raw self-interest, maybe, maybe not, right? Bosnia is another intervention in the 90s that a lot of criticism there around like, you know, was that in our interest? We were, we were literally just intervening to stop sectarian war, to stop genocide, essentially. Um, then 9-11 happens, and we snap back to reality. We start thinking about our own self-interest again. Uh, we invade and occupy Afghanistan because we think it's in our national interests. Um, mistakenly, I think I can say that, we do the same thing in Iraq, mm -hmm. right? We invade and occupy Iraq. But interestingly, you heard Ben talk about this earlier, a strain of liberalism re-emerges here. So George W. Bush and his people, often referred to as Ben said as the neoconservatives, they actually draw their ideological kind of bearings from liberalism. They have this belief as part of this project that if you export democracy and democratic values to places like Iraq, it will make us all safer. Um, now, whatever you believe about the success or failure of that project, Obama is then a reaction against that. Obama is actually a return to realism, hmm. right? So Obama had a famous, you know, Obama's foreign policy, famous foreign policy saying was, don't do stupid stuff, <laughs> except the word, it wasn't the word stuff. 
Um, and what he meant by that was the bar should be high for sort of us getting involved in stuff out there. Um, the one place he did choose to get involved, Libya, that was like also a humanitarian intervention. Literally, you know, a city is about to get eradicated by, you know, sort of the Gaddafi government. And so we're we going to step in and save it. But he regretted it afterward. Um, and despite a lot of calls for intervention in Syria, um, he didn't do it. Um, you know, and there are a lot of people who would say there was a humanitarian disaster there. We did nothing about it. We still are doing nothing about it. Um, and then you get to Donald Trump, who, despite what you may have heard, actually is kind of a continuation of that realist strain of thinking. When you hear him say America first, right, which actually was a slogan used by isolationists um, in, the, um, in, in, in the period of the World Wars, um, when you hear him say things like the NATO alliance is obsolete, other members are not paying their fair share. That's a very realist view of things. Like, what am I getting out of this alliance? And if I'm not getting what I should be getting out of this alliance, should I be in the alliance at all? Um, Trump represents, in some ways, a return to that deeply rooted tradition of American isolationism. Um, there's also a realist bent to it, in the sense that like engaging with North Korea is a good example of this. So a realist would say, I don't ha need any preconditions for, I don't care about your human rights record, I don't care about your values, if you have something I want and I need to negotiate with you, I will negotiate with you, right? Kissinger would have said the same thing, right? I'll build the relationship I need to build uh, in order to kind of get stuff done. That's how Nixon goes to China. That is how Nixon goes to China, that's right, that's right. It's, I mean, and, and, and to be clear, going to China meant betraying Taiwan, right? It meant, it meant giving up all recognition of um of taiwan like kind of protecting them but basically saying your seat at the un your seat on the security council now belongs to this communist dictatorship and not this democratic fledgling kind of island nation that we've been supporting right but it drives a wedge between russia and well sorry the soviet union and china to a degree and starts to thaw relations between china so for yep there's there's a reality that like yes we we sacrifice taiwan for our interests that's right. just the thing. We we sacrificed the democracy to make nice with a country that was going to then drive a wedge in the sort of kind of a communist bloc, if you will. That's pure Kissinger. And Kissinger was one of the architects of that policy. Right? Um, so you can see throughout American history, there's a constant tension between these two things, standing up for our interests and standing up for our values. Interestingly, it tends not to be cleanly democratic or Republican, liberal or conservative. You will find people all over the map. It's one of the last areas where I think that's true. The only the only place where it's not true is where if Trump says something, then you know all the Democrats kind of have to be against it. If Obama says something, then all the Republicans kind of... It's sort of... That's the only place where foreign policy tends to crystallize. But, but actually out there in the broader community, it's not ideologically clear... Sometimes we're realists, sometimes we're liberals. And I think that tension defines American foreign policy. Nick and Ben, I, I wonder, as I, as I listen to that and think about that history, um, I wonder if our value isn't self-interest. So mm. you frame this as a tension between self-interest and the promotion of our values. Mm. But as I listen to you sort of run down the sort of history and kind of land on the point that mm. it's not partisan, terms of how mm. this breaks out uh, I, I wonder if the prevailing sort of value here in terms of American foreign policy really just isn't self-interest whether or not you put a flower on that or you arm it so 
I think generally speaking, you can say yes. There are there are some important counter examples to just self interest. One would be foreign assistance, right? Like there's no there's no. I mean, you can make some arguments that's in our interest to be somewhat benevolent to help with uh, diseases and things like that. But for the most part, we're we're giving away money with you know humanitarian concerns being first and foremost, right? So George Bush, uh, W. Bush. His PEPFAR initiative has saved millions of lives in sub-Saharan Africa, malaria, tuberculosis, and HIV. Um, there's not a huge self-interest there for America. So so there are some counterexamples where I would say, yes, generally speaking, the United States has acted in its interest. But there are occasions in which we do something that's seemingly selfless. Well, so to push it on this a little yeah. bit, um, but it does strike me as occasional. Mm-hmm. And it does strike me that relative to the overall budget of the country and the investments of the country oh, yeah. is marginal. Yeah, it's 0.5%. Right. So, and, and, and it seems to me that for every sort of example we could articulate, whether it's mm-hmm. Bush and his investment there, we could we could mention the Darfurs, the Rwandas, the other sort of massive Syria, other sort of massive humanitarian kinds of things mm-hmm. that the country is sort of taking a pass on. Um, mm-hmm. In that way, so and the largest aid recipients are Israel and Egypt, right? right. For realist reasons, realist right. right? And even you know the the Marshall Plan post World War II, we you know sent a bunch of money to Europe. Why did we do that to establish stable democracies um, in Europe? But th- this is the funny thing: you can argue it both ways. You can say that's in our self interest to give that money. But also, you could you could say we are trying to create free people across Western Europe. So there's part of this is the eye of the beholder. Like realists are always going to interpret things one way, and that now I'm talking about the mm. other side, of the interpretation. Whereas, mm. you know, liberals, pro-America liberals are going to say, "Oh, we did this because we are good-hearted. We're the good guys, right?" And that's clearly not always true. Often not true. Um, but there is it really depends on on how you're spinning it yeah. how, you're, how you're interpreting historical events yeah. so we've gone uh, an unusually long time without uh invoking the bible that's my fault because i was like how do no, you summarize foreign good policy history. <laughs> that's good history man because um, my guess is yeah the average list i'm probably more like the average listener than you two guys who done your studies master's degrees and things of that sort and that i think the the average listener um is probably sort of leaning isolationist self-interest um, because it's it's been mm. in the air since the founding of the country, um, and and it and it becomes a sort of most intuitive talking point mm-hmm. when we watch these things unfold in the way of debate in the country. Like, of course, we should take care of America, mm-hmm. um, and so that that's probably the easiest thing for people to grasp. And the notion of exporting American style values, I think we like that. I don't think we want to pay a cost to do that. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and so the, the questions around foreign aid and things of that sort get getting then sort of naughty for the average listener because it's like, ah, why should we send money, you know, to do these things in these countries that maybe don't want to be like us? Why don't we just fall back in this sort of protectionist, isolationist uh, kind of position? Yeah. So that's Definitely. a help. Yeah, good. That's a helpful yeah. history. Good, good. Well, history. so with that in mind, um, what does the Bible tell us about nation states? and the relationships between them? And does it give us any guidance about these questions we've just been discussing, which is how does the world work and how should we behave in it, essentially? 
Well, that's another good reason why you took so much time because there's not a whole lot of time to take in the Bible. Uh, mm. <laughs> if, if what you're looking for are proof texts sure. uh, on, on this issue. But I, I would say the Bible, it's sufficient. And so we have things in the Bible to help us think about this. Uh, let me let me sort of tick off three things uh, thematically from the scripture and then maybe suggest kind of five applications, if you will. Um, Pete, you brought a mini sermon. No, man, I'm just, you know, <laughs> you, you said we're going to talk about foreign policy. That's why I, I better do some thinking about this. Uh, the first thing I'd say is that the Bible is essentially tribal in its outlook. There's a sense in which you don't understand the Bible if you don't have a good sense of the tribal societies that are being talked about in the Bible. Mm. Um, and by tribal, I don't mean what we commonly mean in political discourse. Somebody's being, I don't mean the pejorative, right? Somebody's being really partisan and so on and so forth. You're talking about all the different ites. That's right. I'm talking about, that's exactly the Malachites, the you know Amorites, and so on. Um, Israelites. So the, the sort of organizing structure of society for most of the Bible uh, is is tribal and mm. and what that means is your your entire identity is derived from the tribe mm-hmm. the kind of work you do is the work your father did mm. uh, where you live is the the ancestral lands of your tribe mm. uh, language culture all those things are are sort of the formative structuring elements mm-hmm. of your identity and so uh, it's it's no mistake that we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel right. Mm-hmm. But it's so those tribes that coalesce uh, into the, the what we might term the nation state Israel. So it grows uh, from Abraham, makes them a nation, makes them tribes, makes them a nation. Um, and so we do have a sense of the national identity forming uh, in the scripture as well. Uh, Israel will have a, a definite geographical border. Uh, it's going to have a language. It's going to have a sort of constitution and laws in the, in the Torah. Um, and uh, it's going to have customs and things that, that grow out of that, that create an identity and so on. Yeah. Uh, so I do think that as we trace the history, we, we see the rise mm. of what we might term um, analogous to nation states mm. uh, in the scripture. Uh, and then there's this idea of empire, mm-hmm. right? So not only do we have individual nation states, but from Egypt to Babylon to Persia um, to, to Rome, you get these sprawling empires that sort of subsume uh, nation states and and control them um, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, um, and that's that's where the nation states their their autonomy uh, is is sort of limited really mm. uh, by the emperor, by the empire, by the mm-hmm. control of the empire. And you think of the the Pax Romana. Well, that, that piece of Rome is, is maintained by pretty significant military might mm-hmm. uh, and strategy. And so there, too, mm-hmm. you, you have the empires emerging, which is a different kind of answer to how do nation states you know, interact with each mm-hmm. other. Well, it's according to what the emperor says in, mm-hmm. in that case. So all those things kind of emerge, I think, in the Bible, and we see them in various forms of development uh, across a sort of timeline of the Bible until you have Israel um, mm. Sort of living under Roman occupation, right? Uh, you got this kind of nation mm-hmm. state that's conquered and part of the Roman Empire. Um, as we think about that sort of development, I want to suggest though, that there are maybe four or five things mm. that we hold on to theologically and practically. First is this the Bible is univocal, it is absolutely clear that it's God who sovereignly establishes nations and states whether you think about them in their tribal iteration or all the way up to empire. 
Uh, God is ruling over uh, every nation state, um, and the sovereignty of states is eclipsed by the sovereignty of God. We, we can't lose sight of that as Christian people. Second thing is this, that saying that God sovereignly raises up kingdoms and pulls them down, that his sovereignty is greater than the sovereignty of nation states, is not to say that God endorses everything that nation states do, mm. right? So the existence of a state, which we attribute to God's doing, Romans 13, other places, uh, is not at all to imply that whatever that state does is therefore good and right. Um, and that's especially important to remember as Christians when we're talking about our own state, right? So it was interesting to watch uh, some political um, pundits back uh, a few months ago when our president was sparring with some other leaders of, of, of um, countries mm -hmm. and, and some Christians were uh, making the national headline saying, Romans 13 you know, uh, establishes the, the government mm -hmm. um, and, and suggesting that our president had, because of Romans 13, right to do whatever he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and you kind of go, uh, Romans 13 didn't mention America only. <laughs> so it's every government. So if that's true of our president, it's true of Kim Jong-il, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, it's true of Vladimir Putin, right? Mm -hmm. Those states, too, are, are ordained by God, are established by God. Mm -hmm. And we, we need to be careful with the good guy, bad guy um, kind of understanding of Romans 13 yeah, right. that just assumes that our country is kind of in the right, is kind of always the good guy, mm -hmm. or that God endorses everything that's done in the name of the state. Uh, so that'd be one thing to say. A third thing, I think the Christian's identity is not primarily or finally um, sort of defined by natural clan, natural tribe, um, nation state, or empire. We have to recognize that as Christians, we are a new clan. Mm -hmm. We are a new people. Um, we are a new nation um, whose, whose head is Christ, mm -hmm. not, not the government leaders. Um, and, and the very nature of this new identity, this new people, is that it crosses ethnic, it crosses mm. tribal, it crosses language and social um, categories. So, so who we are as Christians actually breaks the claim of the tribe and the nation for our primary allegiance. This is why Christians can't be nationalists, mm. right? So the, the sort of rise of nationalism which we've been seeing over the last decade or, or more, um, is in that sense a fundamentally anti-Christian kind of claim. And, and movements like Kenneth's um, inside of Christendom are, are fundamentally anti-Christian because they haven't recognized how Christ has made a people who were no people, a new people mm -hmm. in himself. We've become a, a, a new spiritual nation in that way. And this means, I think, number four, that we cannot think of foreign policy, to come back to our topic, with either realist or idealist motives mm. that are determined a priori by our country of citizenship and residence. Uh, put it another way, what's good for America or insert any other country may not in fact um, be all that good for the church, mm. um, which is the nation that we exist in, in Christ. Mm. Uh, our allegiance is first to Christ and his church, secondarily, vastly secondarily, I want to argue in some ways, um, to our to our our citizenship, our, our country of uh, perhaps origin or our country where we have our, our citizenship. Uh, 
So to put this in the question, what what if the church had a foreign relations policy? What what would it be? Mm. Right? Um, there's a sense in which uh, it's isolationist, right? Particularly in a moral dimension. Mm. Come out from among them. Be separate. Mm. Right? So in terms of our our moral or ethical lives, there, there's a kind of isolationism there. There's another sense in which is interventionist. Go into all the world and make disciples, right? So, so there would be a salvis, salvific or missionary orientation to our foreign relations. We, mm-hmm. we do want to be engaging people with this ideal mm-hmm. of seeing people converted, brought into this new nation, uh, and, and sort of raised to follow Christ. But can a church qua church, the church as a people, as, mm. a, as an institution, can a church qua church ever be militarist, for example? Mm. Mm. I think there's some strong teachings that, that, that push against a, a hawkish, militarist kind of stance. Mm. If we live by the sword, we die by the sword. Our weapons are not carnal. We do not look to lord it over others. Christ's kingdom is not of mm-hmm. this world. Uh, if it were, my servants would fight. Mm. Um, so I think thoughtful Christians need to be very careful that they're not the, the sons of thunder, right? Mm. Calling down lightning mm. and destruction on their so-called enemies, assuming that their enemies are uh, state actors that uh, oppose our state. We, we're to love our enemies instead, and we're to recognize what, what spirit is at work in us. Mm. Um, so as Christians, how we orient ourselves to the issue of foreign policy doesn't map neatly over how a nation state orients itself um, to these things. Mm-hmm. Um, the state can and must do some things that the church can't mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. Um, and so we're going to have as pilgrims and aliens an, an uneasy sort of relationship to foreign policy discussions because we've got a, a different higher allegiance and we've got a different kind of agenda in terms of how we relate to the nations mm-hmm. primarily. Um, and that's going to influence then the secondary issue of how we support or how we challenge our own country's foreign policy. Hmm. Broad strokes. A lot to think about. There's a lot to think about. Um, I, I, I think uh, one question I'd have there is, I think that's clear to me in terms of if the church had a foreign policy, it would be vastly different. That's a useful thought experiment. What about an individual Christian who must make or help make foreign policy, Right. What are the, uh, you know, I think about our friend Paul Miller, whose podcast you were uh, on. Uh, <laughs> we should have had who, Paul on his show. And who is an expert in this area in a way That's none of right. us are. But, but, but I remember, That's you right. know, when he like, you know, there was a time Paul worked in the Situation Room, right? And uh, I'd known the National Security Council. And he's a believer who's responsible for helping make national security foreign policy decisions. It, is there, are there ways we need to show up differently? from the rest of the world in the way we either support or make foreign policy, depending on kind of where we sit. So Nick, to your, to your question, what I'm thinking as I, I'm thinking through Romans 13 and I'm thinking, um, is that, you know, is that an implication for just Christians in a Roman nation? You know, we're supposed to submit to authority and, and their governments are not, a terror to good conduct, but to good conduct, but to bad. Does that also apply between nation states? So, therefore, you know, if a nation state uh, is acting poorly, let's say, you know, Old Testament Israel and and God raises up the Assyrians to, you know, bring divine punishment, regardless of of 
the Assyrians moral character because that was a nation that did quite a few evil things so I'm just thinking through you know what does that what does that mean and and it obviously says touches on just war theory and and the legitimate use of state force Um, is it possible for a nation state to use their their power rightly against another bad acting nation state and I, I my loose understanding is yes perhaps not solely from Romans 13, but I'm curious, Pastor T, what, what you think. Yeah, that, that's a, it's a good question. There's sort of two questions on the table. One is a question I think of in terms, in the categories of individual discipleship. Mm. And then secondly, then the category of sort of nation states and foreign policy. I, I think if, if I take the first question on individual discipleship, Nick, mm. um, I think I want that person doing two things. Now, you mm-hmm. and I both know people who answer the red phone and mm. all that, right? Um, and maybe to come at it a little bit obliquely by sort of putting it in the form of a question. Mm. W- would we ever want a Christian to not be thinking Christianly and acting Christianly? I think mm. the answer to that is no. Sure, yeah. So that means then, so that might ask a sort of corollary question, w- would we ever want a Christian putting other sort of considerations above the lordship of Christ Mm. as they carry out their calling. Again, I think the answer to that is no, Mm -hmm. right? So that's what's going to make that person in the situation room or answering the red phone distinctively different. And and I think we want Christians in that space, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that's a a noble vocation. The language of Romans 13 says Mm -hmm. they are ministers of God. But now... They can't just go in there thinking like Thabiti, <laughs> right? Yeah. Who knows nothing. Mm. They also have to be, uh, as with any vocation, they also have to be kind of specialists, right? So mm-hmm. we want added to the mind of Christ what they know about foreign powers and the behavior of foreign powers and what they know about the effectiveness of deterrence or mm-hmm. what have you uh, and military strategy. Right. So, but, but that's to be for the Christian harnessed to the lordship of Christ. That, mm-hmm. that can't be sort of, I think, um, with integrity, acted upon without considering, you know, I know some people hate this question, but without considering what would Jesus do or what what does Jesus command, right? Um, And so in that sense, I want us to be salt and light in those spaces. We should be in that room. It's It's a room full of peril and full of conflict. And so those servants need our prayers, right? Not our condemnation, but our, our prayers. Uh, but but I think we want them, if, if a Christian in that space mm. leads to a foreign policy that doesn't look any differently than the secular categories we've been talking about, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Something's a bit off. Does that, for you, though, create practical differences in decisions made, right? So to use an example we talked about earlier, right? Like, do you throw Taiwan under the bus and tell Nixon to go to China? If you're in a position to give him advice on that, is there something unchristian about that? Or would you say, actually, wait a minute, like this is de-escal, this is whatever, helping us win the Cold War, helping do certain things that are going to de-escalate tensions and actually increase the chances of peace, for example. Yeah, that's a good example. I mean, that's the kind of calculus you have to do, yeah. right? And, and it's not just people who are in foreign policy that have to do that. I mean, we're doing that with our children, mm-hmm. raising our children, right? They're, what you're talking yeah. about is trade-offs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So I don't mean to suggest that the Christian is ever able really to escape all those kinds of trade-offs and tensions and contradictions mm-hmm. and, and, shouldn't, and shouldn't make a choice. They have to. 
right? Um, protecting the country is a good. Mm-hmm. It's a good moral. It's a, it's a good moral good. So I'm not arguing against that. Yeah. I'm not I'm not arguing for a naivete, mm-hmm. but I do think that the Christian who has to work through that calculus should sometimes reach some different some different answers mm-hmm. uh, or have some different emphases along the way. Yeah. yeah. And, and and yeah, Ben, I, I would agree with that sense of Romans 13 that the government has a sword. Now, interestingly, we always talk about the sword in that passage, but the text also does also say to reward those who do right, right? And so I think the sometimes as evangelicals, we, we're a little too sword, little too sword happy, um, mm-hmm. but there's also the rewarding of the good. And one of the places where the Christian makes a difference, I think, is, is maybe helping the government not to get those roles reversed, mm. not, to, not to punish the, the good doer and reward the evil doer. Right, um, and 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 so we want Christians in that space, and thinking carefully about other other actors mm. and how we engage those actors, not simply presuming that, um, yeah, everything is as it looks in foreign countries, or we're always mm. the good guys, mm. or we've always got it right. We've, as Christians, we've got to be prophetic in those spaces as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That almost makes me wonder if we overthink it, uh, you know, in the sense of if we don't want to be a, a government that rewards bad behavior. Um, and so I'm sure the three of us can think of multiple examples <laughs> off the top of our head where our country is providing arms, money, all sorts of things to states that we would say, oof, that's a bad actor. And, and so... You know, now again, there are trade-offs, right? So, are we doing that in hopes of maintaining peace, or, or you know, saving more lives in, in some different sense? Like those, those are calculations that I don't have the local knowledge to know, and that's where we, to your pastoral point, I think that is very good counsel. Um, and I think different Christians are actually going to come to different conclusions on those trade-offs. Yeah. And go ahead. But but this is where we this is where we have to again remember a couple of things. God's sovereign in all of this. And so our, our, mm. our work in this area has to be an act of faith, right? But we also have to remember that, that we're called to righteousness and holiness, right? Um, and, and that what we, we have to disabuse ourselves of the notion that we can predict with any certainty that if we do X, it's going to re- result in mm-hmm. result Y. That if we prop up this dictator, that that's going to be good, you know, for whatever period mm-hmm. of time um, because we have propped up dictators and it's gone terribly sideways uh, we've not supported good guys it's gone terribly sideways as it happens today is the birthday of Patrice Lumumba uh, who led um, the sort of independence movement in uh, Cong- in the Congo mm-hmm. um, was assassinated months into his presidency uh, by the US and Belgian forces mm-hmm. um, by all accounts historically he would have been a transformative leader in the Congo. Mm-hmm. But out of self-interest, right, this mm-hmm. country conspiring with Belgium had the man killed. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, the Congo's been a wreck for mm-hmm. how long now? So I, I think there's this sense in which we, we, we can pretend to a kind of omniscience about these things that ought to be chastened for the Christian with, with a more pure emphasis on doing what's right as best I can complex situations, trade-offs, but I think the principle there is what's right? Let's do what's right, not just merely what's in self-interest, because um, that's going to tend to selfishness, 
mm-hmm. uh, and that's going to tend to some some sinful tendencies of our own. Realism leavened by liberalism. <laughs> no, seriously. Like I, the more I think about it, the more what I want I think is a realist, clear-eyed view of how the world seems to work, mm. which to me comports anthropologically with mm-hmm. our sin nature. A serious doctrine of sin, right? Yep. Yep. Um, you know, the sort of you can expect states to behave the way people will behave, That's right? right? Uh, and then on the other hand, to say, and we can in fact act in that arena in a way that um, preserves our values. And you're right, Thibi. You can think of multiple examples. Congo is one. Um, you know, we supported apartheid South Africa That's right. because the ANC was in league with the communists. That's right. right. We fought a proxy war with Russia in Afghanistan only to arm the, the people who would eventually become Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was one of the cases where you literally were like, actually, it turned out not to be in our interest, at least mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think when you, you're right, the kind of, in a certain epistemic humility about what's actually going to happen as a result of a foreign policy choice actually does liberate you to say the best thing I probably can do is the thing I believe is closest to being right. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes there are trade-offs where you're just choosing between two bad things, but sometimes um, you can say, actually, this is, this, is, this is the right way forward and it's the path we have to take. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think, I think what makes foreign policy hard is that it is full of those trade-offs and sort of choices between two bad options. Um, and so it feels like you're operating in a gray area. But I do think you're right. One thing that could and should distinguish the Christian is saying, you know, if, if it ultimately if it's not aligned with our values, it will probably not in the long run be aligned with our interests. And right. in the eternal long run, we know it won't. That's right. Yeah, so I think that's, that's right. a good way to think about it. I don't know, Ben, what do you think? No, I think that's good. I think it reveals one of the holes in realism, which is a critique I heard a long time ago, which it assumes um, that people are always, that we always understand people's interests as they define them, which you know, mm. people don't always, countries don't always act in their rational self-interest. They have a different definition of what their interest is. Mm-hmm. And so that does presume, oh, this is also obvious. We understand they're just going to act in their own interest and we will respond accordingly. But there is there is a real lack of knowing um, the consequences of our, our actions there, as the examples you gave are all great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that that is a, a good Christian critique of a realist theory which is not something i thought we'd get to today <laughs> there we go yeah no, me neither actually yeah, yeah. Well, well there you go there you go right well hope so it's helpful a couple, couple of couple of lightning round questions as we close out ben you talked about just war based on all this what does this what should we think what should the christian think about when it is permissible to go to war uh, i honest honest to goodness that's got to be its own episode not to punt. okay fine fine all <laughs> not, right you not can, to you punt. can you can edit that part out then ben. i never i never asked the question um because um, it is there is a wealth of thought on yeah. that one okay fine fine <laughs> I, 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 I get, yeah yeah i think i think that's uh i think that's true i guess the one pin i'll put in it is to simply say we none of us hold the position of to be a christian is simply to be a pacifist Right, which is, right. I think, one distortion you could right. arrive at. That's right. Right, is oh, Jesus right. turned the other cheek. That it actually does not follow that nation states cannot sometimes go to war, and that it sometimes is the least bad option. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Right. So, in a general, a general principle I'll draw is, you know, the pacifist position is, well, war always brings an attack on the imago day in 
countless numbers of humans. But sometimes not going to war does the same thing yeah, by allowing worse. the oppressor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last, so one more lightning round question, which is, um, what about so-called God and country patriotism? We think about, I think actually in our churches and uh, sort of sometimes in the milieu of spirit of, of, of church life in the U S we, you know, we'll sort of kind of reify our military, reify kind of the idea of patriotism. How should we orient ourselves toward that? Well, <laughs> y'all looking at me. Um, I think there, there are differing varieties of a kind of statism. Hmm. Right. So usually when you hear people toss out statism, they're talking about guys who, you know, it's critical, it's a pejorative, folks who like big government, like programs. Da, da, da. I just think this is another variant of it. Mm. It, 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 is, it is kind of idolizing mm. um, governments, idolizing the state. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, even a phrase, God and country, mm -hmm. um, suggests a kind of parody of devotion and mm -hmm. affection that just shouldn't be true of Christians. Um, mm -hmm. The Bible does not guarantee America will be around another year or another month. Uh, Christ will be, mm -hmm. and his kingdom is unshakable. Um, and again, it goes back to our, our mm -hmm. highest allegiance is to Christ, um, and, and our identity is shaped by this two Christian tribe. Um, and so I think there is an appropriate respect for authority, submission to government, service to government, mm -hmm. pray for those who are in leadership. Uh, I think the Bible gives us a lot to do mm -hmm. in appreciation for the state. Um, but to sort of wrap state and Christ together, to wrap cross and flag together, mm -hmm. I, I think is a, a, I think it's an idolatry. And, and the blending of church and state, whether it happens formally or informally, mm -hmm. has almost always been bad for church and state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'll just add one coda to that, which is that... Um, you beware of kind of reifying the state or the military mm -hmm. um, and you can have an appropriate sort of respect for kind of those who serve in those institutions not because their vocations are any better than anyone else's vocations we know that not to be the case but because you recognize that there's a risk and a sacrifice mm -hmm. that people like that take on um, but you, you, you have to be careful in kind of what that turns into I think and, and stronger than that Nick it's, it's commanded in the scripture that we respect those who are in authority, mm -hmm. that we pray for those in authority. Yeah, so yeah. it's good. There's a moral good to it. We just don't want to raise it to the point yeah. where it's a kind of worship. Yeah, that's right. All right, last question, which we always ask. Um, so, so you're not Paul Miller in the Situation Room anymore. <laughs> you're, you're just a person. You're a Christian who doesn't have any pretense of making foreign policy, which all three of us are. <laughs> uh, we've seized that pretense today, clearly. Um, yeah, any practical advice for kind of how the Christian should live with respect to the way they think about foreign policy. You know, there, well, there's a couple of levels I think of. One, you know, in terms of evaluating political policies or parties, foreign policy is something that's really important. Um, it has massive implications for millions of people around the globe, um, whether it's on foreign assistance or military conflict. So I do, I would exhort Christians to at least consider that as part of the calculus they're making mm whether it's in the voting booth or what causes they volunteer their time for, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the, I guess the secondary thing I would say is, is thinking about, you know, if the church had a foreign policy, 
Well, let's let's start to think about how we, we are called to send people far and wide with the Great Commission. How can we support that? How can we care for um, our brothers and sisters that don't live in our exact context? So those are the two implications for for the the normal Christian, if I can say that, um, on this issue is, is think about foreign policy as you're making political calculations, even if it's only when you go to the voting booth. And two, how are you going to engage with the with the rest of the world as an ambassador for Christ? Yeah. I, th- those are really great applications. I don't know that I had much to add. Maybe just one thought. Um, choose a Bible, uh, read a Bible in a year plan. And mm. uh, as you read through the Bible in a year, uh, make one regular sort of question for observation and app- application. Um, what, what does this teach me? Uh, how does this apply to the question of foreign policy? Mm. And see if you might be able to construct your mm. own foreign policy kind of principles just from the Bible up uh, and then sort of bring that into conversation mm-hmm. with the kinds of things we've been talking about today. Cool. Uh, last thing for me, which is a variant on what you said, Ben, is that I'd say, you know, Americans aren't, we're notorious for not knowing as much about the world as, um, as others. And I think as Christians, we should make it our business to know about the world because mm-hmm. the, 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 uh, the nation state of the church, as you, mm-hmm. as you call it, is transnational. Sure. You know, we are part of the globalist conspiracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, what that means is we have brothers and sisters in almost every other country on earth and on every continent. Sure. And so to, uh, to, to understand what their societies are like and what their interests are and what that means for relations between the states we live in um, is a part of just being kind mm-hmm. uh, to brothers and sisters across the world. I think that's really important. So, you know, pick up a copy of The Economist or whatever it is you learn, you, you use to learn about the world and foreign policy. Um, we definitely just encourage all of us, wherever we live, whatever we do, to cultivate an awareness. Amen. Great. Well, Thabiti, you want to go ahead and uh, pray us out? Amen. Let's pray together, brothers. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather again and to talk again about so uh, massive and important a topic. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would make this uh, edifying to your church. Uh, We pray that you would give the listener discernment um, to think better than we have thought, uh, to reflect deeply on on the questions that you press upon their spirit, uh, and to bring your Bible uh, to these hard things. Mm -hmm. And we pray that you'd ask us as Christians, as your church, not ask us, but you'd help us uh, as Christians and your church um, to bear, Lord, prophetic witness um, in this area, um, to not just be... Uh, people of, of, of party, uh, it's America or whatever, but to be people uh, of the book, to mm-hmm. be people of the kingdom. And so to, to be able to both affirm and honor what should be honored uh, and to challenge and to, to, to speak for righteousness sake uh, whenever we need to challenge. Um, grant the Lord that we would be leavening, um, be salt and light uh, in our country in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go! Ah!